Good morning, everybody. I am glad. I am glad that you are all here. I'm glad that those of you that are online are watching us. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the associate pastors here on staff. And um, actually, I was just thinking as we were worshiping the Lord, and, and uh, Chantel was up here singing. It reminded me of um, it reminded me of that passage in the Bible that says, "Train up a child in the way that they should go, and then when they're an adult, they won't stray from it." And see, when I was younger, I always thought that meant take your children to Sunday school and make sure you read verses at them, you know, not to them, because normally when they're misbehaving, you read verses at them, right? Read verses at them, and when they get older, then, you know, when they grow up, they won't depart from it. And I realized, um, I realized something, this has nothing to do with the message, but it really stuck with me this morning. I, uh, I, I find trends and I find statistics fascinating. I like following church trends. I like following denominational trends. I like following Christian trends. And one thing that I notice is that typically missionary kids tend to fare better than pastor's kids. And, I'm not re- and uh, I never really understood why. I always thought it's because you expect the missionary kid that grew up in Papua New Guinea to be slightly feral so you know you don't put a whole lot of... We're not going to put a whole lot of weight on this guy because he grew up in the jungle and he had a machete at the age of six and he's already killing snakes. Right? Like he's, he's doing stuff that most adults wouldn't consider safe enough to do. So I always thought that, like, man, maybe it's that we put too much pressure on pastor's kids. And that may be, but I realized um, in, the, in the mission field, you would, see a parent, you would see a greater level of involvement and this is what we're doing as a family. And I know that's something we say, but you would see the kids being involved in the work that was being done for the Lord, and that is training them up. Involving our kids in worship, involving, I know when I was a kid, when, um, when there was a work day at our church, when there was something that needed to be done, the whole family went. My brothers and I would get in my dad's truck, and why? Because we need to go, we need to go fix some lights, we need to go patch some drywall, we need to, and we would be involved in the work of the Lord. And I realized something different. That's what training up a child really looks like. It's not necessarily, I dropped them off at Sunday school. I dropped them off at Wednesday night service. I dropped them off at the, whatever it is, parachurch ministry, Awana, Royal Rangers, whatever it is. I dropped them off at all these things so that he could be trained up. And it stuck with me for you parents and grandparents, the way that you really train up a child is, I got to go do some work and you come with me. That's what training up a child in the way of the Lord's looks like. And all that to say, that has nothing to do with what I was talking about this morning, but I just thought, man, that is a beautiful picture when we involve children in the work of the Lord at a young age. By the time they grow up, they stick with it. And we have a horrible, horrible statistics right now of people my generation and younger sticking around with church once it's done. So that being said, I'm going to pray, and then we will actually get to what I was going to talk about this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship with my brothers and sisters, and Lord, I know, God, that you said if, uh, you told the Pharisees that the rocks would cry out, Lord, if people weren't praising you, Lord, and, and you spoke through Balaam's donkey, Lord, when Balaam was not listening to you, and Lord, if you can use a donkey and you can use rocks, then you could use me. And I pray that you would uh, fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that you would speak the words that you would have spoken this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing on through our series, our, our Identity in Christ. 
And it's something that I have been really, really enjoying because for a long time I, I kind of struggled with an identity crisis. I think most young men and most young women do. Like we would define ourselves by who we are, where we came from, what we did, what sports we were involved with, right? I was a football player. I'm a cheerleader. I'm, a, I'm an American. I'm from California. I'm, I'm an electrician by trade. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. We tend to identify ourselves by things that won't really complete you in our identity. And I think, honestly, right now, too, we're seeing a lot of that as a problem in our culture. We're seeing, we're, we're looking for, we're looking for ways to identify ourselves and set ourselves apart, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm this, right? Well, I believe in this cause, and so I'm going to wrap myself up entirely in this cause. I'm going to wrap up myself entirely in this generation, in this idea, in these things. And I think as a country right now, we're going through a bit of an identity crisis, and we're kind of forgetting who we are. And so we're looking for anything that we can grab onto, any cause, and we're going to champion this cause, and our whole identity becomes wrapped up in, in relationships, in, envir- in the environment, in cars, in gas, in wars, in relationships, in our gender identity. We wrap everything up in either one side or the other. This is who I am. So I think resetting that and getting our focus back to who am I in Jesus Christ, because that's an identity that won't let me down. That's an identity that I can stick with and that, you know, it's never going to fail me and I'm going to be able to rest in that. So we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And right now Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus. And um, so far in this chapter, Paul's gone on and he's talked to him about, um, before we get to verse 13, he said that you are in verse 5, having been predestined us, to adoptions as sons of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So he's already laying the foundation with the church of Ephesus that, hey, you have been adopted into the family of God. I've already taken you, and now you're a child of God. Right? So he's already laying the foundation of who, what their identity is and who their identity is in, saying, hey, now you are a child of mine. Now you have been adopted into the family of God. And he said, in him, in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his graces. He's saying now because of Jesus' death on the cross, right, and the church in Ephesus, like you're repentant of your sins, you're accepting Jesus Christ, and because of his death on the cross and the blood that was spilt for your sins, now you have been bought, but the price. Now, now I have predestined you. I thought about you before the very foundation of the earth. Before I started anything, I was thinking about you sitting in that pew in the church of Ephesus. I, was, I had a plan for you, right? And then I sent my son to die on the cross in your place and the forgiveness of your sins. And so now the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your sins. You're adopted into the family. Now because of the gospel, because of the death of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus... Now you're part of the family, and you've been bought with a price. So he's, he's already laying down this foundation for the church in Ephesus, saying, I have thought about you from the beginning. I've made a way to be with you from the beginning, right? I paid the debt that belonged to you. I paid the way for your sin because I love you. So he's already setting up the church in Ephesus to say, like, hey, your identity is in me. Your identity is being in a child of God. And he goes on in... Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, in whom, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So he's saying, okay, now I have paid for your sin. You trusted in Jesus after you heard the word of truth of the gospel of your salvation. So Jesus died on the cross. He was dead, buried, rose again. And now the apostles and the believers in the early church were going out and they were telling everybody about Jesus. Right? There was a lot of persecution, so the church was spreading. And he said, hey, now in Ephesus, you have heard about the gospel. You've heard about Jesus Christ. You've heard about the work that he did, and you believed in it. You believed in it, and now because you've believed in it, because you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that was kind of a that was kind of something that got me to stop when I was a little bit younger, thinking, what does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Seal of Promise? What does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? When I was younger, I always thought about Ziplocs. Like, I have been Ziplocked by the Holy Spirit because it seals in freshness and keeps out freezer burn. <laughs> right? I was like, it kind of struck me as odd. I'm like, all right, that was the picture in my head. Or like a time cap. We're going to seal the time capsule. I'm like, all right, you're going to suck all the air out and like clamp it shut. So we are going to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And so I started looking into what does, what does it mean to be sealed, right? And so actually I got a picture. So back in the day, they did not have authentication, right? I don't know about you, but now it's funny. Even like my work, everybody's going to two factor authentication. So if I want to work on my computer and I'm not at the house, not only do I have to have passwords that they make me change every couple months, and who can remember all that, I break the rules and I actually have a note on my notepad in my phone. It's okay. That keeps my passwords because I can't remember them all. So I've got my passwords written down. Well, now not only do I have my passwords written down, and I've got to change that every couple months, now I've got to get my other work phone, and after I sign in with my password, now it's going to ask me to scan my face and push this button to prove that I'm really trying to, like, now I've got to go through all this technology stuff to prove that I'm really Justin, and I'm really just trying to check my emails, right? I'm not in charge of anything important, but I've got to go through these two-factor authentication processes to get into my work. Well, back in the day, this is how that they would authenticate that something was official, that something was real, that they would seal it, and the king or the governor or the, or the Roman general or the Greek general or the Israeli kings, they had seals on their rings. This was the royal ring. This is the royal seal. And so what they would do is they would melt wax and they would make an imprint of it. Here they were using a coin. And so if you had a letter like that that was sealed, that was proof about who it came from. That was proof that you had actually bought something. So they used, to, um, they used to buy things in other countries, and it would take a long time to sail. It would take a long time to get something from, from, like, uh, from Asia over up into the Middle East. It would take a long time to get something from, Af- from like Egypt to Israel it takes a long time to get there. So when people would go and they would buy things, they would buy grain, they would buy artifacts, they would buy clothes, they would buy textiles, right? They would put their seal on it and said like, hey, I'm an agent of the Roman emperor and I'm coming over here and I'm going to buy this wood from this really fancy country because we don't have this kind of wood. They would 
put it on a cargo ship and they would melt wax on it and they would put a seal of the king in it so that when you got there, they could go down to the dock and say like, yep, that, that, and that have been bought by this person, by this king, by this governor, and so it's mine. I don't know, kind of like, um, now we do it a lot better. I think this is from Fry's because it's the only receipt that I could find. Um, I bought carne asada, so that was a good day. <laughs> so now we have receipts for the same purpose, right? I don't know how many of you guys have tried to go buy things from um, like Ikea and you're like, I need an Engelbuschker. And you go and you write it down, you pay for it, and then you go find it in the aisle. And then you show them the receipt. Right? I, like, I really like tools, um, but I have four kids, so I don't usually have the budget to buy a whole lot of tools. So I get a lot of my tools from Harbor Freight because I don't need to use them all that often anymore because I sit at a desk. But when I buy tools from Harbor, when you buy something big, they tell you to pull around back. So you pull around back and you get out of, the, you get out of your truck and say, like, I bought a new toolbox. It's a nice sized one. They say, well, let me see your receipt. I want you to prove that you bought this toolbox before I'm just going to load it in your truck. One of the points of the seal was to prove that something had already been purchased. It's like, man, you have already been purchased. There is a seal on you that says you belong to God. You've repented. You've given your life to Christ. You've repented of your sins. Man, now, there, now you are sealed. Now there is proof of purchase that you are mine, that you belong to me. Now, like the receipt, I don't know about you guys. Um, I always like the receipt checker at Walmart. Because I don't know why he's there. He never checked. I found out if you show them the receipt that you're willing to show, they don't want to see you. It's the guy that's trying to hide the receipt and not look at him that they ask questions of. But I was actually reading an article that said um, now, at, even at the Walmart over here at Cortero, they're making a ton of arrests because of that self-checkout. People are not scanning all of their items. Right? And I actually, it was funny, I talked to a guy at a place I used to work that told me he would not scan all of his items, but he never considered himself a thief. And I'm like, well, you're walking out of there with it. He's like, well, I got a receipt. Yeah, but the receipt doesn't show that you paid for everything. So now they're checking your receipts to prove that the merchandise you have, you've actually paid for. So now when you go to Walmart and you go through the self-checkout, they want to see your receipts because, you know, like you scanned an auxiliary cord and not the 75-inch TV that you're walking along. Like, I got a receipt. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't pay for it. One of the great things about this seal is that it is proof of payment. It's proof of purchase. I've bought you. You are sealed with that seal, and that's proof of payment. None of the other th- so when they would... Um, when, you go through, when they would go through customs, they had the seal on it. They knew who it belonged to. They knew the tariffs. They knew the charges. I don't know how many of you guys have been through customs, but every time you go through customs, like if you, go down to, if you fly down to Mexico or if you fly up to Canada and you come back and they ask you if there's anything to declare, and I found out everyone declares that they're tired or that they're hungry, and the customs guy does not think it's funny at all. Like, I love dad jokes, and every time I make one, apparently they hear it all the time, and it's not funny anymore. <laughs> With all the traveling done, they always come back, and they say, hey, do you have anything to declare? And nine times out of ten, I don't. I don't have, they're looking for purchases. They're looking, have you brought food that's not packaged, that's not in a sealed box or a sealed Ziploc plastic bag that says, oh, yeah, you bought this, this was processed food, it's fine to have. Um, when I was with the ship and we would sail into a new country, the first, one of the first things we had to do within the first two weeks was declare all of our electronics with a value over $100. 
We had to declare to whatever country we were doing, we were going to. We'd have to declare our stuff. So we may have to make an Excel spreadsheet that says, you know, we've got two laptops and, you know, those are probably worth two or three hundred bucks. And we've got some, we've got, we had a DVD player on the ship so that we, you know, we could watch movies in our own cabin. So we'd have to write down and we would declare it to like the Ghanaian government, to the Senegalese government. Yes, we have this value worth of electronics that we're bringing, right? When we moved back and we were going through the airport in Dallas, we landed in Dallas and that's where we went through customs. Right? They ask us, did you have anything to declare? We don't have anything to declare. Did you buy anything in Africa? And we're like, you coming back with anything? And not really. And my son's like, we got clothes. <laughs> no, dude, shit. <clears throat> we bought, like, we had, like, two or three shirts each. And the guy, the custom guy's like, yeah, dude, we're worried about, like, $300 worth of, we're like, we're worried about, like, are you trying to buy stuff and resell it? And so we had a long conversation with my son. Like, it is good not to lie, especially to people like Customs and Border Protection. We don't lie to them, but we also don't need to go around telling people, like, we brought back two shirts each. We're not, we're not, we're not bringing stuff back. Daddy does not need to go sit in an office for four hours and talk to the Customs guy. Thankfully, he had kids. He, he understood. Sorry, but when you're coming through, they wanted to see, like, do you have anything to declare? And that seal was on it saying, yeah, this is mine. This belongs to me. The other really important of a, uh, the really other important and significance of a seal is that it also is like a seal of approval or like, um, like a notary. So when, when, um, when I, got, when I got married, I got married, and uh, we had to file with the, we filed with the um, clerk recorder in the county of Orange in the state of California. So that's where my wife and I were living at the time. We got married in the next county over because we found a place that was prettier and cheaper than Orange County. Orange County is not a very cheap place. So we had to fill it all out with our names, with my wife's maiden name, our date of birth, with witnesses, with zip codes. We had to provide copies of birth certificates. So we fill all of this out and we sent it in to the county clerk and the county clerk took all that information and they stamped it and they notarized it. And so now I've got the, I've got the great seal of the state of California and the county clerk recorder for Orange County, California on my marriage license. So the other really significance and importance of that seal is it saying that, hey, this is a true document. Now you are legally bound together because it has been reviewed by the proper authorities and it's been notarized and it's been sealed. It's got the seal of the state. It's got the seal of the county. It's got the signature of whatever justice of the peace and whatever clerk recorder reviewed it. The other really important thing is that uh, I know we've got... uh, I, we have in, in my extended family, we have several family members that have been adopted. And when you get adopted, you have to file a lot of legal paperwork and a judge reviews it and they stamp it and they seal it. They put their seal on it saying, now it's official. You've been adopted into the family of God. Right? Jesus, they said that uh, Jesus is going to prepare a place for us in heaven. And the Jewish customs a man and a woman would get betrothed and for another year, for about a year they wouldn't really hang out together all that much because the man had to go and prepare his house right i realized i found this girl that i want to get mar- i want to marry so their engagement was almost like a marriage there you would have to get a certificate of divorce 
to break an engagement. But then that man would say, like, all right, it's time for me to become a real man now. I'm going to go. I got, I got to get my job. I'm going to go get my house in order. I got to build a house. A lot of times they would build on to the father's house or the parent's house. So it's like, all right, well, now I need to go get ready for a wife. I need to get ready to receive my wife and be a man. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go get my, I got to go get my job. Like I've been apprenticing and, and I'm going to build my house and I'm going to get ready so that I can receive a wife. And I'm thinking about it too. Jesus said like, man, I'm going to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it talks about the marriage supper of the lamb in the book of Revelation when Jesus receives the church as the bride of Christ, man, there is a marriage certificate. It's sealed. There's a seal on it. Right? The adoption papers, you've been adopted into the family of God. And there's a seal on it. It's important. The seal of the like the seal carries a lot of legal importance, right? Not only is it a proof of purchase that like, hey, these goods that I bought from this far off country I paid for them, they're mine, right? The seal is also important because it said like, hey, legal, like it's like notarizing this, um, it's like notarizing paperwork. It's official. It's got the seal of God, the seal of the Holy Spirit on it. That man, you're mine. Like we're family now. The other thing that I think is really important about a seal is that the seal also carried weight depending on whose seal it was. Right? If I make a seal, it doesn't mean anything. If I, if I seal the front door or something and I, I put a wax, like my, my impression on it, it doesn't mean anything. You can break my seal. There is no consequences. There's no consequences because I'm a nobody. Right? I'm, I'm not important. But the higher up the food chain you go, the more weight that that seal actually carries. So if you broke... A mayor, if you break like the Tucson mayor seal, it's like, eh, like probably shouldn't do that. I'm not really worried about her. I live in Marana. <laughs> like, but then, man, you start talking about governors and you start talking about princes and you start talking about kings. There were serious legal consequences for breaking a seal. There were real big consequences. Um, and if we look at Matthew 27 verse 66. Um, I'm going to flip there real quick. Matthew 27. So they made the tomb secure, sealing the stones and setting the guards. So what he's talking about here is Jesus has died and they buried him. Pilate had the body taken down because this was before a big Jewish festival. And they knew that he would claim to rise again. And they were really worried about an insurrection. Right? Because the Jews were already not happy with having Roman captors. With being under the authority of Rome, they wanted to be their own country. Right? This, is, this is not something we see in the news every day where one country is trying to kick another country out of their own country. This is brand new territory. Right? This never happens. So they're saying, we want to get you out. So they were really worried about using Jesus as a symbol to start an insurrection. So what they did is they put him in the tomb to bury him, but then they also poured a wax ring around it, and they put the symbol of the king in there. And that everybody at that time knew exactly what that meant. If I come and I fuss with this seal, I am dead. That is capital punishment offense right there. That's treason. 
That was something you could be put to death for because this was sealed by the king. They're worried about an insurrection. They're worried about people trying to use Jesus as a symbol to start a civil war and throw the Romans out. So they buried him and they put a wax ring around there and and they sealed that tomb and they put guards in front of it and everybody knows exactly the meaning of that, that you cannot break this seal by punishment of death. Right? You have a seal that's saying, I am, this is sealed by order of the king. There's a lot of weight and a lot of importance that comes with that seal. They would also put that seal on documents to authenticate that this was news from the king. And if you got caught tampering with something like that, it was a capital offense. So at, at work, I, um, I work as an, as an estimator now by trade. And so I, I, I review documents and I review drawings, and I sit around and I think about how much will it cost to, for an electrician to do this work. The company that I work for, right, we have software, so I can tell them, like, okay, it's, it's this many feet of pipe and this much wire, and it should take this many guys this many days. So I figure out all the stuff, and I, I get prices to buy light fixtures, so I contact people that sell light fixtures. I tell them I need this many of this type of lights, and so they send me all these quotes, they send me all these prices, and I put it all together in a proposal that says, the company that I work for can do this work for this price. And when I send it to them, I actually have to run it through a software that will keep it from being edited. You can't edit this document, and it puts, it puts my name, my signature, and the company letterhead and some other legal things on there saying that this is now a legally binding document that says... I promise I can do the work you've asked me to for this price. And I can't, I've tried, I can't amend the document. Like you realize that like, oh shoot, I left a, like I left a comma out and it looks stupid. And so you go to try to edit it and you have to delete everything and start. It takes like 15, 20 minutes. You got to start all over. So you realize you left a comma out or you spelled a word with like one S instead of two and you look good. And I swear that's the only thing my boss notices. Like he's really good at like, I like I send something down. This is $6 million worth of work and all the inclusions. And he looks at it for two seconds and goes, you're missing a comma. I'll fix it. <laughs> like, what about the rest of this stuff? It looks pretty good, right? Right? So it puts a seal on it and it says you cannot change this document now. If I send it to this company, they can't change it. And be like, well, look, see, it says here that, no, I didn't put anything in there about fire alarm. Right? You can't change it. It's there. And that was the same thing with the seal of the king. When they would write a decree, they couldn't put it on the news. They would have to send people with, they'd have to send people with letters going around to every town and every city saying, hey, the king says we're going to have this kind of census, so you need to go back home. You need to go back to where you were born so we could take these censuses, right? That's what happened to Mary and Joseph and why they ended up in Bethlehem. The king, Herod, said, you got to go back to where, you're, where you are from. And so the king would write all this out, and then they would take that ring and put that wax seal on it so you knew it was by order of the king. That seal was that proof that this was an order by the king. Otherwise, I could just, like, maybe I don't like you, so I just tell you, yeah, by order of the king, you have to go back to where you're from because I don't want you to be my neighbor anymore. Right? So they knew that that was authenticating this document, that this was an order of the king, and there are heavy consequences if you don't listen. There's heavy consequences if you break this seal. 
And that gives me so much hope and so much joy, knowing that I have that seal of the Holy Spirit. That people cannot just cross that without permission from the king. Right? I, see, I, know a lot of belie- I know a lot of people that read the book of Job, and it's scary. And I'll give you, the book of Job is scary. Man, in the span of like a week, just a few days, this guy lost his kids, he lost his house, he lost his money, he lost his food, he lost his livestock, he lost his health. His wife was like, just curse God and die. But the thing that really gives me hope when you read the book of Job is because Satan had to go ask permission. Satan couldn't cross that line. He wanted to. And, and, uh, and God was like, tell you what, you can do this and nothing else. This is as far as you can go. And Satan could only go up to the line, but he did not have the strength and the authority to cross that line. And so while sometimes things are hard and sometimes things are scary, I take a really, I take a lot of hope and a lot of joy in the knowledge that God is watching that line and no one is allowed to cross that line without permission. Right? Because you've got the seal of that king on you now, nobody's just allowed to cross the line and do whatever it is that they want. There was heavy penalties, and the line could not be crossed. And why is it important? So in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 9, uh, where am I? It said, And so the great, the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of, of our God and the, power of his, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So it said, right now Satan's like a like a bad lawyer or a bad prosecutor in heaven saying, "Look what Eric did. Look what Justin did. Look what Chuck, look what that guy did. Look, he, look 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 at this. Look at all the things that he's done. He doesn't deserve to be here. He doesn't deserve to be in your presence. He doesn't deserve any of this. He deserves to be mine." He's like a bad accuser in heaven and we've got proof of payment. He's accusing you constantly, and God's like, hey, he's mine. I've already paid for him. He's mine. I've already adopted him. I've got the paperwork. He's already forgiven. He's already mine. So you've got Satan constantly trying to go before God and accuse you of things and trying to get at you. And I, I, really, love, um, I really love the C.S. Lewis. I know it's a little scattered, but... C.S. Lewis is probably one of my favorite writers, and he wrote one of my all-time favorite books is, um, is The Screwtape Letters. And it's fiction. It's fiction. But it's a really fascinating read, and if you've never read The Screwtape Letters, I would really highly recommend it. It's written through the point of view of, um, of demons, which sounds really dark and really scary, but it's actually kind of bureaucratic and a little... I find it a little humorous. So there is a... There is a there is a junior tempter. His name's Wormwood. There's this little, like this little devil, and he's been given, like, okay, this is your first job. You're done with school. Your job is to make sure that your man fails and comes down to our father below. So he's writing to his uncle Screwtape, 
who is the undersecretary of the department. Screwtape's been at this for a long time. And one of the things that I really loved in this book is actually, it's, it's in the opening, and, um, and he said, uh, C.S. Lewis said in the opening of his book, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils are equally pleased by both errors, and they will hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. He's saying there's two, there's two things that happen, and I find when you start talking about the enemy, there, uh, the devil, there's really t- I find really common there's two things that happen. Either everything is the devil, the way I stubbed my toe on the way in, I watched a movie, and it was really scary, and then there was lightning at the exact same time, so Satan's out to get me, right? I've been, I've been running around all week and doing all this stuff, and now I got the flu, even though it's October and it's raining. Like, this is all the devil. The devil is out to get me. So, well, the devil's not behind everything. Like, you were, you're also running around in October, and that's just when everybody gets the flu. They said there's two things that happen. Either everything is the devil, everything is... Everything is demonic. Everything is out to get you. Everything is spiritual warfare, or none of it is. He's not real. We're focused on Jesus. There is no such thing as spiritual warfare. There is no devil. There is nobody that's trying to tempt me to sin. There is nobody that's trying to tempt me to lose my temper on the freeway and blow my top because that's where, like that's that that's one of that's one of mine. I, I have a hard time driving in other states. I really do. I, I, I struggle. I took, a, I took, gosh, I don't know how many hours I was in the car, but last weekend I drove 13 and a half hours to go perform a wedding, and then we came back a different way to drop my son off, and it was like a 15-hour drive through. And I find that when, like, everyone tells me that Californians don't know how to drive and that L.A. people don't know how to drive, and I'm here to postulate that in some of the states in the middle where they're not heavily populated, y'all don't know what the left lane is for. And you don't know where you're going. And I could tell because you're doing this. And you kind of start swerving. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Like, I came from, like, dry, I used to work in downtown L.A. And everybody knows where they're going and how to get there. And I'm going to get there. And if you're in my way, I'm going around you. Like, the speed limit is 65. If you are not doing 70, you should be in the right. The far right lane next to the trucker, right? We're, we're, we're going. And I know how to get there. And I will, if you put the blinker on, I will n- I'm not going to slow down, but I will not accelerate for 2.3 seconds. And one, two, nope, you didn't start to move over, so you lost your shot, right? So I, I can, I can kind of lose it on the freeway when I'm getting behind people, and I'm like, just go, just go. You're either doing 90 or you're doing like 55 and a 70. There's no happy median. Right? Or my personal favorite is when you come to a four-way stop and people are waving at you. Just, it's not my turn. Just, go, just, I know, but it's not, just, never mind, I will just go. Or roundabouts, right? The sign says yield and people are like, they will stop in the roundabout and wave at you to come in. And I know they're being polite, but there are rules. If you just go, I will eventually merge. Like, just, just, just go. So I, I, I like so that's why I listen to a lot of worship music and a lot of Christian podcasts while I'm driving, and the, and the Holy Spirit is good to remind me every once in a while, like Justin, you're driving. It don't matter. You're already going to be ten minutes early. It don't matter. 
right? So then we go through this whole extreme of like the devil doesn't exist. Well, then it, like all of a sudden you realize like, man, I had a rough week. I've had a hard time. Things are not working out. And sometimes it is the enemy trying to get at you. It is the enemy trying to get you to blow up and swear and honk and, and give people a California greeting in their car. Like sometimes it is. They said we fall into two things. Either it never is the devil or everything is the devil. And he said he's in heaven accusing us, but man, we've got our adoption papers notarized. That Holy Spirit, when he moves into your heart, he puts a seal around you that says, man, you cannot come this, you can come this far and no farther. You can come this far and no farther. And I realize sometimes, man, the Lord is so good. The Lord is so good that there are times I want to blow my, I really want to blow my top and uh, I can't. There are times I wanted to, there are times I wanted to lose it. There's times in my life where I've wanted to sin and do things I should not do. And the Holy Spirit just takes away all the opportunity. Like there are times I was getting ready to lose it. And then a buddy of mine I used to be a youth pastor with, right? He's a pastor of another church in Orange County. Will give me a call because he's got a question about something or just to say hi and what's up. And it'll just totally diffuse the situation. I realize like, oh man, thank you, Holy Spirit. Like, thank you, Lord. You are intervening and now you're also keep, not only are you helping me, but you're keeping me from sinning and losing it. He puts that seal around you. And I wanted to take just a few minutes and actually talk about the Holy Spirit too, because I, I find uh, the same thing that people say that there's two extremes with, with the devil. Either everything is the devil's fault or nothing is the devil's fault. And I find the same thing is kind of true with the Holy Spirit. I said, I follow a lot of church trends, and I've gotten to go to a lot of different denominations, and I've got to meet a lot of great people that love the Lord and serve the Lord from a lot of different denominations. And I find the same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. Either, like, the Holy Spirit is behind and doing everything, or the Holy Spirit was here for, like, 20 years, and then when the apostles died, he was done, and that's it, and now we're, like, nothing ever happens anymore. We're done. That, that was his job, was to validate. The, whole, the Holy Spirit's job is to validate and to convict you of sin, but that was it. So like I said, I had friends that, um, it was actually kind of, I really wanted to go. I really wanted to go to this, but I never got the opportunity. And maybe it would have been a little not right of me, but there was a church not far from where I used to live in Riverside County, California, where they would handle rattlesnakes. And it's a little nuts. So these people would handle rattlesnakes in the name of Jesus because it said the poisonous snakes will not be able to harm you. And so they would, haunt, they would hold rattlesnakes. And I'm not saying this is a real good Bible-believing church that you should attend. But they would handle rattlesnakes. And if you got bit, then it was the Lord's will that you got bit. And if you survived, it was the Lord's will you survived. If you didn't, it was the Lord's will that you died. So during a worship service, there'd be people with rattlesnakes. And I'm kind of a smart aleck, and I'm like, doggone, that would be fun to watch. <laughs> like, I would love, I would love, I, I don't want to touch one, because I got more comment. But I'd like to go to this church, and they're like, man, it's, this is the Holy Spirit's moving in here. And like, mm, nope, nope, I think that's just you, and maybe some peyote, I don't know. But like, <laughs> this is not the Lord. God doesn't tell you to run around holding rattlesnakes and call it a church service. Or the other thing, I had some really wonderful friends, some very orthodox, wonderful friends Man, that were very uncomfortable with with the topic of moves of the Holy Spirit, and right, their churches were their churches were very starch shirt, very suit and tie, and there was not anything fresh or done in that church in decades. There was a difference in who the Holy like the Holy Spirit is not a fool, 
and the Holy Spirit is not done. The Holy Spirit is the part of God, and he's still moving, and he's still doing things, and there's a balance somewhere in the middle that needs to be found that, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be holding rattlesnakes at church,